Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and we are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African Americans. With me are four of my black classmates, John Woodford from Ann Arbor, Jerry Secundi from Pasadena, George Jones from Atlanta, and Connie McDougal from New York City. I'm also joined by classmates Bill Collins from Aiken, South Carolina, Marcy Benstock from New York City, Hampton Howell from Nashville, George Allen from Los Angeles, and David Othmer from Philadelphia, and Jeffrey Fox from Spain. Our guest is Devarian Baldwin, professor of American Studies at Trinity College in Connecticut. His new book is titled In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. It's been a project that's been um, I've been working on for over 15 years, um, thinking about this growing relationship between um, universities or institutions of higher education and our cities. Um, right before our eyes, I think people don't realize the degree to which universities have a significant impact on our cities. Um, colleges and universities are the biggest employers, real estate holders, uh, healthcare providers, and even policing agents in major cities and college towns all across the country. So for example, USC, for you folk in California, is the largest private employer in Los Angeles County. Uh, NYU and Columbia are two of the biggest landholders in New York City um, behind the Catholic Church. Uh, the University of Chicago feels one of the largest private security forces in the world with jurisdiction over 65,000 non-student residents on the city's south side. So colleges and universities are, have this huge impact on, on urban life and small and town life. And on the positive side, um, colleges and universities bring ideas and people together and generate new innovations. Um, but there is a cost to those living in the shadows of these ivory towers. Campus expansions can raise housing costs and displace residents and neighborhoods, um, working class neighborhoods and communities of color that largely surround campuses. Campus police forces surveil and profile the same residents and are rarely held to public accountability, especially to private schools. And then higher education's broad control over labor um, can lower uh, wage ceilings and suppress collective bargaining efforts um, in towns and cities that where the university is the primary employer. So ultimately schools are setting the housing costs and land values. They're setting the wage ceilings, the healthcare standards and policing priorities for whole cities. And so this book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, it tells the story of higher education's growing control over our cities um, and those who struggle to survive in their shadows. Um, the, the key point here is to make sense of what happens when you, for various reasons, turn a city into a campus or, or what I call the rise of universities. <laughs> And significant amounts. So whether we're talking about, you know, New York and LA, Chicago, Atlanta, St. Louis, Denver, or Columbus, Ohio, or or uh, Madison, Wisconsin, or Gainesville, Florida, 
the growing reach of universities is significant. And, and a major reason for this is because of the rise of what um, I call um, the knowledge economy. So what? the knowledge economy. Oh, knowledge, yeah. Right. Sorry, the knowledge economy, excuse me. So, okay. so, so, you know, what happens when higher education becomes the new face of capitalism? Mm. So in this, in this new political economy, academic research is used to create profitable commercial goods or patents mm -hmm. in a range of fields from pharmaceutical industries and software products to military defense weaponry. Mm -hmm. And so on top of that, most properties that are held by universities by nature of the presumption of higher education's public good are deemed tax exempt. Yeah. So yeah. what's happening here is that you're having all of this prof, this profit, this multi-million dollar research and development for private companies happening on tax exempt land, whereby then partnering with universities gives private industry an increased benefit in the private market. Yeah. And the university then becomes a tax shelter for mm -hmm. private industry in today's knowledge economy. So this has given universities and colleges even greater influence and impact, um, both in terms of land, land management, economic development, and uh, urban governance. And I'm sure even in the biggest cities like New York, which has several universities, and right now we're worried about New York University, which mm -hmm. seems to, uh, you know, like they want to take over the whole neighborhood all yeah. around them, um, which uh, we have property there and we're pretty yeah. concerned. What so do you I, I have a whole chapter on New York that looks at both Columbia and NYU. And what uh, about Harvard? Yeah, Harvard, I, I don't have a whole chapter on Harvard, but I can talk about Harvard a bit. So um, there was, you know, in the two early 2000s, Harvard was notorious for buying up property in the Austin Brighton neighborhoods right across the river um, right. under a third party anonymous name. So they did it in a third party name. That got exposed through some uh, journalistic investigation, but by that time, the properties had primarily been had been um, purchased. So things slowed down in 2009 with the economic recession, but we're now seeing a, a significant ramping up of uh, economic and uh, property development, especially in the neighborhoods just across the river. Another issue with Harvard is the fact that it has probably arguably the largest endowment in the country with a $40 billion endowment. Uh, and also with that endowment, even during the recession, Harvard received CARES Act money. Uh, an untold story of Harvard is it's, and so those of you in California will know this story probably well, is that with that $40 billion endowment, um, the university has been buying up water rights in oh. California um, oh. in anticipation for the privatization of water resources over the next couple of decades. Wow. wow. Oh. Okay, I had no idea. Yeah, and so this is really interesting because it really raises the questions about what are the true functions of an endowment? Now we know in the most general sense, an endowment, and those of you that contribute to a university, you know this, an endowment represents money or other financial assets like land donated to nonprofit organizations, um, including colleges and universities. Now, because of the presumption that these institutions are a public good, these endowments are tax exempt, whereby the institution only has to, to spend as much as 5% of the endowment annually in order to maintain that tax exempt status. Hmm. But 
because the endowments are in the billions in the case of Harvard, um, most of that money has been moved into money market accounts. And so ultimately what these institutions are doing, they're spending more money on their financial planner than they're actually spending on offering, you know, say a reduction of tuition or doing community-based work in the, in, in, in the surrounding areas like Cambridgeport or Austin Brighton or other neighborhoods. They're just, the money's just sitting there accruing more and more interest and wealth. The idea is that, well, this money's supposed to support the institution over the life of the institution. But it's based on the premise that these institutions will not receive money annually in donations and tuition. So then you're just sitting on these billions of dollars and it's accruing interest. And again, people are spending more, these institutions are spending more money on the money manager than they are in offering resources and aid to the communities that surround these, these institutions. And so Harvard is the most notorious example of that. And so while their endowment grows annually on the labor side, this is the part that hardly gets discussed. We think about labor, we think primarily about faculty and administrators, but universities are the primary uh, employer of low wage laborers in the food service industry or the food service fields and groundskeepers and in, in support staff in the labs and the offices. And these are primarily women of color. And so when the university doesn't offer a $15 wage, an hour wage or a living wage, they're setting the wage ceiling for the entire city. Because if they raise the wages to a living, a living standard, because they have such a, a significant impact on cities, all the industries in the city would have to match it in order to keep their employers. So the university has a significant uh, impact on the economic uh, quality of life for low wage workers. So in 2016, um, food service workers at Harvard went on strike um, because as we all, as you all know, um, most workers at universities work on a nine month cycle. And so what's, hap what's happening with low wage workers is that they will work for nine months during the school year. And then um, there would be no money for them in the, in, the, um, in the summer or they would work, but they wouldn't receive health benefits. So these are family, these are workers with families, working class families. And so the workers on the food service industry at Harvard went on strike to receive money to help compensate for the losses they would accrue during the three month summer months, three month period. Um, then in 2020, during the pandemic, uh, Harvard did put food service and low wage workers on furlough um, during the pandemic, offering them benefits and wages for three months. Um, between, I think it was March, April, May, and June, March and June. But increasingly, colleges and universities are not employing low-wage workers directly. They're employing them through a, um, a subcontractor. Mm. And so what this means is that the agreements they make with a university union or the workers that are directly employed don't apply to the subcontracted workers. So when they put directly employed workers on furlough during the pandemic, it didn't apply to the majority of the workers that are under subcontract. Mm. So then the law school found out and some alumni found out and they began to um, put out media blasts to talk about the inhumanity of this with Harvard having a $40 billion. They could pay the money out of their endowment a fraction, a, a percentage of a percentage of their endowment could pay for their wages. Mm -hmm. So this was made visible. And so the university started receiving bad press and they included the subcontracted workers under the arrangement that they held with the directly employed workers. Well, something. 
Well, how much of this, uh, how much of the of this expansion is sort of justifiable? I mean, are they just expanding to expand, or is it? Uh, I mean, are they really running out of room and space, or what? I think they are running out of room and space, but the question is, running out of room and space for what? Uh, most of these schools, so we know that both public and private universities receive public money. So whether it be Harvard or University of Massachusetts at Amherst, they all receive public money from the state. As the decades have gone forward, these institutions have received less and less money from the state because of shrinking budgets at the state house. So they're looking for new revenue streams. So one of the ways that they're looking for new revenue streams is in the private economy of, of, of knowledge, pharmaceuticals, research and development, uh, military defense, weaponry, um, uh, big pharma, biotech, all these things. And we know we can look at MIT in Cambridge and see that, but Harvard is also investing in the same things. So the, the expansions into Austin Brighton are primarily research and development based. They're profit-based expansions. Universities like Harvard, but it runs the gamut, have for decades been working under the cover of our presumption that just simply their presence, their existence provides a public good. But this creates what I call a public good paradox. Now, what do I mean by this? It's precisely their nonprofit status as providing a public good service that gives them this property tax exemption. And it's this property tax exemption that then allows them to invest in for-profit research and development and royalty, and royalty uh, acquisitions that makes their profit-bearing work um, not subject to public scrutiny. So this is what I call the public good paradox. It's precisely because we think they're a public good that they're able to invest and engage in private profit interest, which is all of this economic development and research and development. And, and another part of this is that universities are competing with each other to capture the best and brightest students, researchers, and their families. So the way to do this, uh, and can't, that you mentioned about do they have to do this, is that they're not just creating laboratories, they're also creating retail corridors like Harvard Square. Mm -hmm. They're trying to attract, you know, create walkability, uh, uh, dense foot traffic congestion, uh, amenities like, you know, Lululemon and uh, uh, Abercrombie and & Fitch and Shake Shack, all the things that students want, these retailers, mm -hmm. that will bring the best and brightest to a full urban experience in the midst of very urban environments. And so this is also a piece of their um, uh, retail re real estate portfolio. And what I say in the book that got coverage a couple of weeks ago is that what makes all this viable is the ramping up of campus policing. Mm. Mm. Um, that we say that campus policing is about public safety because many of these urban universities, including you know, uh, uh, Harvard, are in um, uh, multiracial and sometimes working class or urban poor neighborhoods. And so the way to attract families that might have concerns is to ramp up the policing apparatus. Mm -hmm. Now, the irony here is that the biggest crimes in campus areas are not perpetrated by residents that surround the campuses. They're primarily campus crimes like sexual assault, theft, and substance abuse. And these are the crimes that campus police fail to prosecute and police. 
<laughs> why? Some people say, well, why do they fail? And I argue in my work that I've done, and I've, I've interviewed over 100 people and conducted archival research and statistical data. I found that they're not failing. It's a matter of priorities. If you're trying to attract families and researchers and investors to your area, and the crimes in the area are primarily student on student, and let's be honest, primarily white on white, that's not going to attract investors. That's going to undermine the brand of the university. But what will ramp up the brand is to combat the perception that these universities are in uh, black and brown neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods and posting up campus police all around the perimeter of the campus. And let's be clear, also engaging in memorandums of understanding with the surrounding cities to sometimes have jurisdiction over the whole city. Mm -hmm. So having police in the city speaks to safety in ways that resonates with students, families, and their investors. So there actually is a total disconnect mm -hmm. between the actual public safety needs of these areas and the actual way in which campus police function. Right now, with all of the conversations around George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, the you know universities responded in a powerful way and said you know we're we, we're investing in anti-racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're you know we're going to investigate our slave roots. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to talk. We're going to diversify our curriculum. We're going to diversify our faculty. But the biggest silence that came with this whole conversation around anti-racism is that in the in the shadow of 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 the sparking of a conversation about anti-racism being um, demonstrated or provoked by police shootings, the easiest conversation or the easiest lever to have this conversation around at a campus is to talk about the unjust practices of campus police. Mm -hmm. And that's the conversation that universities are not having in a large part. Now, Johns Hopkins was pit with, with, a, with a, a multi-million dollar donation from uh, 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 former Mayor Bloomberg from New York. Um, they uh, were putting together a project or a proposal that got passed by the state house to create a private campus police force. It got passed, it got accepted. But in the wake of the uh, George Floyd and the protest, they put a two-year hold on that on that initiative. Um, at Portland State University, um, in 2019, a young black man who was trying to break up a fight in a, a, a college bar. Um, Jason Washington was killed, shot and killed by the campus police. So after George Floyd and this protest, uh, Portland State said they were going to disarm their police. Um, right now, um, Amherst College is putting together a, a research study, a committee to think about ways in which they might want to disarm their police. But this is three schools. There is not, there's not been a groundswell of conversation amongst university leadership about why um, why do we need armed campus police? And observers have said that, listen, all the talk about abolition or defund, we know it's controversial, but if you look at it at its base level, if you look at defund or disarm as simply saying that um, nine out of 10 police stops don't require an armed response. And that public safety in the broadest sense actually means um, food security, affordable housing, and trauma care and medical supplies. That if this is what we mean by police abolition or defunding the police, universities are perfectly situated to begin thinking about this 
because they have these big medical schools where they could actually replace armed guards with teams of trauma care and healthcare workers, be it students or interns or, or professionals that could do far more work than an armed police guard. Um, this could mean, for example, schools with their cafeterias had to throw away food every day that's unused. Why couldn't that food be packaged into healthy meals for communities of need that's around campuses? This is what police abolition looks like. And if any institution is perfectly suited to do that, it's universities and urban areas and college towns. But this has been a non-conversation and that's a problem. Is any, um, excuse me, is there any um, data on whether campus police have the same record of uh, you know, brutality and, and misuse of their power to the same extent, more or less than uh, governmental police? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there is not statistical data to specifically argue, answer that question about whether it's com comparably worse or better compared to municipal police. But what we do know is that campus police, if their function is public safety, they are failing at that endeavor. What do they actually do? <laughs> when it comes especially to one of the biggest crimes, sexual violence, they are not preventative, they're reactionary. They don't stop sexual violence. Um, they don't stop substance abuse. Many campuses are, are like Amsterdam. I mean, I'm being facetious, but um, they're, 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 they're free zones because there's a, there's a desire to not bring bad press um, or, or to see, you know, uh, let's be honest, privileged white students going to prison or jail for, for criminal infractions. So what we have is a two-tier policing system where if a resident and a student commit the same infraction, the student goes to see the, the dean of students, whereas the resident goes through the criminal justice system. And these are students that called it, students at, at the University of Chicago called this a two-tier policing system. Um, we also know that while we're not comparatively speaking between municipal police and campus police, that um, uh, campus police are engaging in high rates of racial profiling in neighborhoods that surround their campus, especially in Chicago, um, in Los Angeles. Um, a recent study just came out at UCLA talking about um, that, that UCLA police conduct more stops um, off campus than they do on campus. And so these are, you know, so the point here is that it's not about being against public safety, but what is public safety and what role do, do campus police play in actually ensuring public safety in any functional and, 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 and uh, prohibitive way? And that's the real question here. Can campus police then are granted jurisdiction outside, beyond the campus? Yes, a lot, not, across, not across the board, but about, not about uh, so, there, so uh, out of all public and private universities, about 70% of schools have campus police. Uh, nine in 10 are armed and about 80% have jurisdiction beyond the campus. Some have jurisdiction wherever there's a university building and some have memorandums of understanding with their cities and towns to police the whole city. They do it in Ann Arbor. New Haven has, so, so Yale has jurisdiction over the entire city of New Haven. <laughs> the University of Chicago has jurisdiction wherever there is a campus building, which is increasingly larger swaths of the city, especially the South Side. Well, how do they justify that at Yale, for example? I mean, what do they what do the what do they tell you, officials? They they argue that um, you know, number one, police budgets are well, not police, but state budgets 
municipal budgets are shrinking and, and, and in New Haven, the one reason why the city budget is shrinking is because uh, the, the Yale is one of the biggest landholders in the city and they don't pay property taxes. <laughs> so the argument is that, well, this is a public service. We can provide public safety because you don't have the facilities of the budget to do it in a robust way. So our job can, we can add to the public safety. Now, of course, we know that a major reason why Yale is investing in public safety and, and, and having jurisdiction is because their footprint is expanding across the city. What is, what is your solution? Is your solution to start taxing these mm -hmm. uh, nonprofit institutions to contribute to the budgets of the various cities? Well, I'm glad you asked. I have a lot of I have a lot of recommendations. <laughs> I'll just be very brief and go through a couple of them. But number one, we have this thing called a pilot, a payment in lieu of taxes. So Brown pays the pilot. Um, uh, uh, New Yale pays the pilot. Yale pays a pilot of thirteen million dollars a year, but their their endowment is thirty eight billion dollars. Right. Um, in the city of Boston, since two thousand and twelve. Um, the city asked all nonprofits that have property valued at over $15 million to pay 25% of what they would normally pay if um, their property wasn't tax exempt. To date, no school has actually even paid that 25%. So right now, there is a bill in the state legislature to make that 25% requirement mandatory. So yes, a pilot would be a good start, but it's not the only thing that could be done. As colleges and universities expand their footprint into neighborhoods and primarily neighborhoods of color and poor neighborhoods, whenever they expand, I believe that those developments must be governed by a community benefits agreement. I believe that all uh, campus projects should be tied to a CBA. This could include, and the agreement should be made with community organizations. Um, this could include uh, the building of community centers, um, access to campus facilities, uh, the building of affordable housing or affordable housing land trust that allow current residents in those neighbors on fixed incomes to be able to compensate for the increased property value so they can still stay in those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. It can include zip code specific free education or living wage job opportunities. Um, it can include zip code specific procurement contracts. So as you build in a neighborhood, you have to invest in the neighborhood, you have to employ people in the neighborhood. Um, and all these things should be governed by community advisory board. I argue that with endowments, that schools are only required to spend 5% of their endowment. If the school like Harvard has a $40 billion endowment, what would it mean to Harvard to say, let's increase, increase that required payment to, to 8% and that the, the additional 3% would go towards building affordable housing or land trust or um, um, community development projects in the neighborhood. That would be millions of dollars. So, Tavarian, uh, let me interrupt. Um, and I may be the only one uh, on this call that actually was chairman of the board of a small university. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ones that went out buying uh, land for expansion, et cetera. Right. But when we talk about endowments, endowments are very specific as to what they can be used for. So right. I tell you that my small university did not have the flexibility to mm -hmm. simply write checks to- uh, That's right. Uh, the local community, I will put it that way. Right. I will also tell you that you can't paint all universities with the same color in the sense that I'm not. Prescott, Prescott, where I was, was in the middle of a white middle-class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And our neighbors were delighted because every time we expanded, we had to pay two to three times the normal market value in order to get their homes is what it amounted to, mm -hmm. even when we went, went about it anonymously. Right. So things 
are different depending upon where you are. And I know you're talking about large urban centers, but how do you get, a, get around the restrictions on endowments? We could not figure that out. Right. You just use the tuition and then use the endowments for the, for the education. That's a good question. Well, will there's a way. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but also just to, to speak to your, fungible. <laughs> but yeah. also to speak to your point, major portions of endowments are restricted, but not all portions of endowments are restricted. There are open funds within endowments that can be used for the, in these manners, in this in this manner. And on top of that, um, as you make appeals to to donors, um, there isn't even a discussion about community benefit funding. So we, when, when universities may ask for their don to their donors for endowment money, they could ask for community benefit yeah. endowments. They could ask for those endowments, for those funds to be earmarked or to be restricted to community benefit projects. But we it don't might even, even might even motivate to donate. Right. We don't. Schools don't even ask about that. So that's and you're right. All schools are not the same, and that's just why I spend time talking about Columbia and NYU because Columbia is in a, NYU is in a much more affluent neighborhood than Columbia, and the story started out different, but it ended up the same. That the unfettered power of the university and the relationships with student with, with with city government allowed them to alter zoning laws that had been agreed upon in the days of Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs. They allowed them to flaunt the zoning laws that, that, that determine that certain areas would be restricted to educational purposes and got opened up for commercial development for, um, they, they got height restrictions uh, amended um, both at NYU and Columbia. So yes, you're right. Towns are different than cities. Um, predominantly white neighborhoods are different than working poor and black neighborhoods. Um, and what I'm talking about, I'm not saying all universities, I'm saying we need to be aware, like you're, you're right, this is an urban study that I'm offering. But we need to be aware of this larger trend whereby colleges and universities are, are, are today's factories and our cities are their factory towns. And there is a cost. We presume that they are inherently a public good, but they're engaging in private profit interests to meet their needs that do not benefit the public good. And we need to ask, what are the consequences of that? And what does this mean for our neighborhoods? When a group, when a group of residents in the, the black neighborhood of Witherspoon Jackson found out that their property values were rising up because Princeton had laboratories in their neighborhood, they asked why. They wanted to know what's going on. We, they weren't doing anything different. Why was their property values going up about uh, above their fixed means? And when they found out it's because Princeton was nearby and Princeton wasn't even paying into the public schools through property taxes or snow and trash removal, they sued Princeton and won an $18 million lawsuit. One resident was so disgusted by what he saw, he dismissed Princeton as a hedge fund that conducts classes. <laughs> the other thing is, where, what is your opinion on what kind of pressure should be brought to bear on them? Because I guess it can be brought by government, by you know city walls. It can be brought by. Um, donors, I, su I suppose also, and then students. You say faculty is losing power and I agree with that. Mm -hmm. But how, how, would you, how would you organize pressure? Yeah, I think it has to be multi-tiered, multi, multi but I think one of the key levers in this conversation are the alumni, you guys, I really do. Um, because not just for, don for donations, but universities receive a, a lot of 
capital, cultural capital value based on the relationships they cultivate between the institution and its, and its, and its graduates, its alums. And there is power in saying, as an alum, I believe this. As an alum, I speak, especially if you're organized. But then if the alum begin to coordinate with residents in these, in these neighborhoods and towns, that becomes an even added layer of leverage. And that's something we rarely see. There might be a, a community-based appeal or an alumni-based appeal, but the coordination between the various uh, points of impact, alums, residents, who are also many times workers at the university, if they coordinate it, I think the impact would be even greater. Do you have any examples where that's been done or started? Yeah, so I just got back from um, uh, New Haven. Um, there's an organization called New Haven Rising um, that's been going on for about 20 to 30 years. And this is the organization, because Yale is such, has such a significant impact on a small size city like New Haven, um, it's a coordination of students, workers and residents and many of the residents are workers at Yale they are they are they are organized as unions under unite and mm -hmm. so new haven rising is a purposeful coordination of constituent groups that cut across old divisions and so they have begun have started or have continued a campaign for living wages for the work, for the resident workers for a greater increase of the endowment to be offered for community development projects um, for the idea of Yale to be, uh, for their taxation, their, their pilots to be increased. And there actually is gonna be some pushback. And now the mayor, uh, Justin Elliker, he's saying if, if Yale doesn't kick in, we're not gonna be able to balance our budget. Hmm. Um, and so there's been some agreement that Yale, Yale might offer a one-time $50 million contribution. Um, but I, I, I caution against that. Um, because this is an ongoing relationship right. that the prosperity of these schools that they, they tout every year is partially extracted from what they don't pay to these cities. So a one-time payout is yeah. not gonna solve the problem. It must be an understanding of the economic structure of how the prosperity of these schools is, is coming from its relationship with its cities and towns. So for example, at, um, at UPenn, Penn is one of the few Ivy League schools that does not pay any pilot. And activists around a group called Pen for Pilots um, made visible that there's asbestos in the secondary school buildings, and they are they they connected that to the fact that Penn doesn't pay anything into the school into the into the public schools. So Penn offered a you know a, a nice donation. They called they made sure to call it a gift according mm -hmm. to you know their lawyers. I'm sure told them to do that. They they called it a, a gift of hundred million dollars of ten million dollars over over ten years. Mm -hmm. Now we know they're a multi-billion dollar endowment. They're a multi-billion dollar institution. So $10, $10 million over 10 years is not a lot of money. Also, they called it a gift because that allows them to never admit to any kind of structural responsibility. That this is, this is just a benevolent offering. Right. Call it anything else would, would, would acknowledge responsibility or relationship. And they're not doing that. And so I just bring these things to light to show that these are examples of people fighting back but I mm -hmm. offer my book and my insights to say that this is not about benevolence or philanthropy or goodwill. This is about a political economy that must be made visible to understand precisely where this prosperity comes from. Mm -hmm. I talked to students at college towns like Amherst or um, 
or Williams, they're like, well, we don't live in an urban environment. I said, but I can guarantee you that the most, most of your workers, your, your low wage workers are black, brown or working poor. What would it mean to build affordable housing, worker housing on your campus or near your campus and pay for it? You don't have to live in a city to offer a real public good, mm-hmm. but you can't presume that simply your presence is a public good. It's not. And this is one, this is one thing that's different um, with the church is that with the university, there's, there's a grayer area around their research and development. Schools can argue, well, we're doing pure research and development. So there has to be some forensic accounting about to what degree is your research and development being brought to market. And any building where you're doing market-based research must come on to the tax rolls. Mm-hmm. And schools have been able to benefit from that for years, especially during after the 1980 Bayh-Dole Act, B-A-Y-H-D-O-L-E. The Bayh-Dole Act, a group of universities lobbied the federal government to say that federally subsidized money that primarily funds academic research. So before, if you, if you, if you procured um, uh, a discovery because it was federal money, you couldn't privatize it. You couldn't own it. You couldn't turn it into intellectual property. But after the Bayh-Dole Act, now schools can take that research and development that they got from basically welfare money, federal, federal money, and privatize it and sell it on the market and receive royalties. Yeah, no, that's ridiculous. And yeah. so now these tax-exempt buildings become financial powerhouses. They become tax-exempt factories. And the, the graduate student workers are exploited. So when, when the university does accrue a, 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 an IP and it reaps royalties, the school gets between 50 and 60% of the royalties mm-hmm. and the ownership. And I'm not saying they shouldn't get any of it because it's happening on their on their in their buildings, but I I spent um, time talking to uh, uh, graduate students at Carnegie Mellon, and they were very clear to me. They were like they said to me they were like you know if I went to Bombardier or Google or GM or or um, some other company with a BA degree, I'm this is a couple of years ago, so I, they might go there and receive sixty or seventy thousand dollars coming out with a BA do some good research and over time that money would increase to 100,000 to $150,000. With the same degree, they go to Carnegie Mellon, do the same work, they get a 40, maybe a $40,000 stipend. Yeah. They conduct more research. Five years later, they still get that $40,000 stipend and they're doing profitable research and development for companies that partner with these schools. And a big portion of the money that the school that the, that the companies donate is tax exempt for the company. A big portion of the money that they that they get that the school gets is put into the amorphous category of overhead costs. This is a great arrangement for the school and for the company, but the workers who aren't even called workers, they're called apprentices, get exploited. And this is why. Graduate students are, are, are were on strike this summer at Columbia, at NYU. I think they're going to go on strike at Brown because this, these are unjust relationships that happen on tax-exempt land that benefits private companies and universities. These are things we just don't talk about. The entire industry is under the shroud of public good, right? Institutions are, are public, are, offer a public service. 
the workers are interns, right? Yeah. And the endowment offers the public goods, all sheltered. Yeah. Uh, again, there are things that universities can do. Again, my, my small university, we opened up our library, we opened up our conference rooms, we right. opened up our dormitories right. uh, for some of the homeless people and also some right. of the families of the firefighters that were killed in Prescott, uh, Arizona. So mm -hmm. there are things that can be done and we've worked very closely with the local community. And frankly, we've got a very good reputation because of that, because we opened up our campus is what it amounted to. And that's because great. I, I hate to say this, but money is not fungible. Tuition goes for current expenses and it can't just be, you can't just take money from the endowment to make that up. And that money has to be done for the current expenses and there isn't enough to go around is what it amounts to. But you could put together a capital campaign for community yeah. benefit. And no, school does, and no school does that. And the yeah. same when you make a capital campaign for buildings or for a new sports complex, you can make a, you can put together a capital campaign for community benefit. And, and I don't see, but I'll, I will, in my book, if you get the book in the, in the epilogue, I spend some time talking about the University of Winnipeg. And, and, and so people say, oh, you're, you're being critical. It's all negative, negative, negative. What's the solution? Well, this is not a perfect solution. But after both community and student and faculty protests at the University of Winnipeg, we see a different model. They put together a vision of sustainability that was not just environmental, it wasn't just LEED certified buildings, but it was social, political, and economic. So what did that mean? That meant that as they built housing complexes, these, these housing complexes were available to residents and students in a mixed format. They had the premium rate housing that paid for the whole complex, affordable rate, um, and then rent geared to income rates. All of the units were interchangeable except for the premium rates. The same qualities, the same finishes, the same facilities. And then the student government offered units of childcare in the student childcare facility for residents in the area. They also, Fire, they, they were, they, for a food service, they had Aramark or Sodesco or Marriott, one of the multinationals that we all know about. They fired them and created their own food service company called Diversity Foods. What do they do? They, 65% of their employees are from what they call communities of need. Uh, LGBTQ, recently incarcerated, uh, uh, new Canadian, what, they, what we call immigrants. 65% of their employees come from that and they are engaging in profit sharing. So not just wages, but profit sharing. And then on the other side, 65% of their raw materials come from small farms within a hundred kilometer radius of the school. Mm. They have compost stations next to every workstation and they take their cooking oil and send it out to be converted into biodiesel, into fuel. So, and then a, a professor on that campus said, well, this is not even good enough. Most of the indigenous people that live in this area, and it has one of the biggest indigenous populations in the world, they will never come on the main campus. So without the support from the university, he took what had pre previously been a single room occupancy heroin shooting, shooting den, a whole, a whole hotel. He converted it into an educational complex in the indigenous neighborhood on the north end, the north side, and made it a local educational complex with rent geared to income housing, with food, with supports, right in the middle of the indigenous neighborhood. 
So when people tell me, they say, oh, you're being hard on universities. What can we do? We're hamstrung. We're there, there, are, there are limited options we can do. There are things we can do. These are things we can do. During the pandemic, the University of Chicago began to package its leftover food into meals for communities of need. But I say, well, if, if, the pan if you can do it during the pandemic, why couldn't you do it all the time, yeah. right? When the pushback came from alumni and law students at Harvard about covering subcontracted workers under the same agreements that you have direct employees, yeah. why couldn't you do that all the time? My alma mater, Marquette University, has a neighborhood kitchen. Um, there was pushback at the University of Buffalo when uh, the medical school was moving into the historically black neighborhood. So residents organized and created a community land trust so that vacant properties were now covered under the land trust so that they could not be just simply bought and flipped, but had to be governed by a certain rate so they remained affordable. Neighborhoods can do that. Um, right now at the University of Chicago, as the Obama library goes up, property values are rising and speculators are swooping in to buy up properties in the surrounding area. Mm -hmm. Residents have been calling for an affordable housing land trust so that when property values go above the, the, the capacity of the elders in those neighborhoods, they can still stay. There are all types of solutions that could be made to make these relationships more equitable. It comes down to a matter of our will. Do we want universities to be for-profit institutions or people's institutions. It's up to us. And I talked historically about, we've seen precedents for this before. And a lot of them, um, uh, uh, Gerald, are, are, are community colleges. So in 1960, uh, 1968, um, Crane Junior College got converted into Malcolm X Community College. And they were one of the first schools to offer a prison annex for incarcerated residents. They fired the, the, um, the Chicago police, off, the off-duty Chicago cops and, and hired uh, a Black-owned um, um, unarmed security force to police their grounds. So this is in 68, right? We know, most of you probably know, when uh, Columbia tried to build a, a gym in the middle of Morningstar Park that was separated Harlem from the campus, um, residents and activists charged Jim Crow, G-Y-M Crow. <laughs> and they protested and occupied the buildings for a week until the university had to stop. Um, in 1970, uh, Black and Puerto Rican students and activists um, protested until um, the City University of New York not only had free tuition, but open admissions. Schools are starting to revisit this critical 1968 period. So the point here is that, yes, there are challenges, but we have precedents in the past and examples across North America where a different set of relationships can be possible. It's not pie in the sky sci-fi, it's real. I didn't mean to stop, silence y'all, go ahead. <laughs> in, the Canadian case, in the Canadian case, what inspired the university to take these steps? What was the trigger? Yeah, because they, it seems to me that's very interesting. What gets the movement going? Well, first, first, first of all, um, they, it was not fully benevolent. There was significant pushback because they went through a period of development where they built university buildings with their with the backs of the buildings facing the, the, the neighborhoods. 
And the indigenous communities were extremely, that's, that's the, the urban indigenous community that's around the university were extremely upset by that. And they have been upset for years. Then um, a new president came in who had been what we consider to be like a, 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 a minister of foreign affairs, Lloyd Axworthy. Axworthy. He had been president of the university. Then he went into, into, uh, into um, Canadian government and then came back. One of the real reasons why these things changed was because the university began to see the personal interest that could be that could be generated by investing in surrounding neighborhoods. The school had primarily been a commuter school where white Canadians had come into the city, went to school, and flew back to the Winnipeg suburbs. But we they began to see an explosion in the numbers from about in the in the in the, two, in the 1990s. The populate the demographic of the school was about six thousand, and it jumped to ten thousand in a matter of a couple of years. And the majority of those new residents were new Canadians and indigenous that had a different requirement for supports. They were families, they were poor, and the university knew that in order to support these new um, um, uh, students, they would have to put together family style housing. They had to put together um, social services that could benefit the new residents to keep them there and keep them bringing their financial aid and their tuition dollars. And that's a good lesson for us right now because in the face of the shrinking mythical uh, white family that can pay $70,000 a year, that demographic is dying in America, but we still chase it. And the current response by universities has been austerity. We're gonna shrink. But what they're missing is that there's a whole demographic of Pell eligible students, white poor, working class African-American and Latinx that are carrying financial aid with them wherever they go. And these schools need to invest in that demographic because that's the future of higher education. But instead, they're creating austerity measures. But if you invest in those communities, you're gonna to have to diversify your faculty, you're gonna to have to diversify your curriculum, and you're gonna to have to offer social supports that those historically elite white families didn't need, like affordable housing for the families that support these, these students, like uh, 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 neighborhood kitchens, um, like social supports, of a mutual aid that you would not need for the traditionally imagined uh, student profile. But the benefits will far outweigh the cost if these schools invest in these new demographics. Because right now, a lot of these schools are holding on to the vision of the old university and they're gonna close. I'm telling you now, it's the schools that actually turn to this new vision are the ones, if they don't already have a $40 billion endowment, Harvard, they're fine, they're gonna be untouchable. But the schools that are in the middle, if they don't turn to these new demographics, they're going to close. Do you have any input in the Department of Education? I wish I did. I, I'm, uh, if they if they hear this, if they, I yeah. mean, the book is circulating. Um, the ideas that I'm saying, they're yeah. they're not. You know, I, I don't own them. They they're they're available. <laughs> Can I ask a question, please? Sure. So, I I I. Was for a number of years at Emory University in Atlanta, so I I know the city of Atlanta reasonably well. Yes. So you may be aware that Delta Airlines just gave a million dollars to the Andrew Young Foundation in Atlanta. Mm. I think about a year or a year and a half ago, they gave a significant amount of money to Morehouse College. Right. You referred to the universities that you're talking about as knowledge factories. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that in a sense, you are asking the universities to become more like the factories or businesses like Delta in, in terms of providing that kind of that kind of support. 
Mm-hmm. But my question is, if you do that, what right. happens to the knowledge? What happens to the knowledge? Right. That's a great question. Well, let's 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 already ask the question. What's already happening to the knowledge? So right right now, um, we are seeing a shift of education from a general like development of the citizen of the person towards career orientation, um, overfunding of STEM STEM areas as compared to um, humanities and social science areas. So the knowledge is already being shifted towards career-based development, uh, profit orientation. So that's already happening. So to then ask institutions like universities to then be transparent about what's already going on is not going to shift that. It's going to just simply say, okay, now be accountable from a financial standpoint to what you're already doing from a curriculum standpoint. So we, if we wanna say that the knowledge should be shifted back towards a humanistic person development of the whole person framework, that's another conversation. But what I'm saying is that if it, because the knowledge is already being overwhelmed by career and, and, and market interest, then at least pay in, kick in, make the financial arrangements uh, uh, commensurate with the actual functioning of the institution. And you think that's what's happening at the institutions you studied? What's the that? What's the that? That in fact they are shifting away from the knowledge for its own sake to, to, to a knowledge as a application. Oh, most definitely. I mean, now now uh, professors are are being asked to come in with a with a grant already established before they can get a position. Um, um, you know, um, I, I, I didn't just talk about elite schools. Also, you mentioned um, uh, Prescott. Um, one of my chapters is on Arizona State University in Tempe and downtown Phoenix, where they have a new campus downtown. And when Michael Crow, the new president, he was brought in particularly because he was understood as an academic entrepreneur, that the, the, the whole endeavor of the institution is to bring research to market. And the money of the institution follows those, those departments that can do that. So not only are you bringing research to market, but you get benefits and you accrue leverage at the institution because you bring research to market. Why should the why should the uh, university institution be any different than the society as a whole? There's all these pressures coming from the American society that are uh, shaping universities. Well, if, if we're going to do that, then don't be tax exempt. Don't be hide behind the public good cover. If you're going to be a company, then be a company. That's what I'm saying, right? Yes. Because on top of that, the hiding behind the public good presumption is actually allowing you to accrue more dollars. So it is once again all about money and profit. The book is In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. The author is Devarian Baldwin. That's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.